This is the Grind, Sell, and Elevate podcast by Tizer Evans, where we do a deep dive on how to stay driven, how to be a top-tier salesperson, and how to elevate the quality of your life. Everybody, this is Tizer Evans with Grind, Sell, and Elevate. This week, I talked to Mark Hirschberg, who's a newly found author of the book, Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. So Mark has had a ton of experience helping build startups. He's a really well-educated guy. We had a fascinating conversation talking about the different types of career toolkits that you need to get to the next level of success. If you guys haven't done so, please subscribe to the podcast. Drop me a five-star review. That helps more people find the podcast. Tag me on social media at Tizer Evans if you're not already following me on all platforms. And lastly, if you want to work with me for one-on-one sales consulting, consulting, or you're a small business owner looking to revamp your sales processes, head over to my website, TizerEvans.com. Be more than happy to help you personally or your team get to the next level of your sales success. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Mark. I've got with me Mark Hirschberg, who is an author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills That No One Taught Us. I like that. I taught you. Excuse me. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, of course. So I'd love to hear a little bit about, uh, more about you know your book, uh, what you've been doing, why you wrote the book, who you are, and, and whatnot. Sure. I think of my background as having two parallel paths. So the first is pretty standard. I came out of MIT with a couple degrees, started as a software developer, did the dot-com growth, and became a CTO. So helped traditional garage startups, helped a couple Fortune 500s play startup, and all kind of what you would expect, a fairly straightforward path. But I've had the second parallel path, and that began about 21 years ago when I was first interviewing people. And I'd ask them a question. It might be an accounting question or a software question. And okay, they'd give me the right answer. But then I would ask, what makes someone a good teammate? Mm -hmm. What are some of the communication challenges you might face in this job? And I'd get blank stares. Because if you think back to what we learned in high school and college, no one ever taught us how to be a leader. No one ever taught us effective communication strategies. Maybe you had one class where they mentioned a little on public speaking and that was it. Sure. I realized these skills aren't being taught. I had picked them up because I knew in my career to be a leader, I would need these skills. So I looked for materials to train up my team. I didn't find a lot and began to kind of research other ways to do it. At the same time, MIT was starting a program. We had gotten lots of feedback from the companies that hire our students saying, look, they're, they're obviously smart and capable but we want to see leadership, communications, negotiation skills, teamwork, and we're not seeing it. And this is not just an MIT problem. Feedback has been given to career offices for universities across the country. Yeah. We started this program where we've been teaching these skills to our undergrads to get early in their careers. And one of the key points is that when you get early, you're more, you're more aware of it and you find more opportunities to develop it. And then after having done this now for two decades, uh, I decided to put a lot of the teachings into a book so it could be accessible to more people. And again, oh, okay. it's not just for engineers. This is, these are universal skills. Uh, yeah, I mean, anything with leadership, teamwork, 
whether it's in company or out of company, you know, right. It's, it's all very, very relevant uh, regardless of what your actual job title is. You know, I'm curious on your opinion, because I totally agree. I, you know, uh, I did not go to MIT. I went to a state school in San Diego. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, I did, you're 100% right. As you said, uh, you know, you may do a little bit of public speaking class. I took one. I took one public speaking class. I took a, you know, um, interpersonal communications class. I took a mediation class. I probably took a little bit more communications being one of my degrees than other people. But it still is like I didn't come out of college with like this incredible tool belt for me to go in and dominate corporate America. Right. So I'm just curious, in your opinion, why do you think that that isn't taught or it's not a priority? I briefly touched upon this in the appendix, and it has to do with the origins of our school systems, the primary and secondary school systems. So we think through high school. That really came out in the late 19th century where we started mm -hmm. sending people to school for basic reading and writing, and then to get them set up for 20th century jobs, which at the time was manufacturing. You didn't need to worry about teamwork. You needed to turn the screw as you were told on the assembly line. Right. Or even as we got mid-century, you had your the classic like inbox, outbox. You know, your boss tells you what to do, you do it, put in the outbox. And it was a very command and control structure. So we didn't have to teach higher order thinking. The university system, meanwhile, was taught to teach a specific, was designed to teach a specific discipline. Learn accounting, learn marketing, learn engineering. If you think about what we do, we get, there's a couple general requirements you take and then you focus on your degree. Mm -hmm. Now you happen to get a lot of communication. I can tell you in my physics degree, there was <laughs> none of that, none at all. Yeah. And so a lot of us weren't trained in these general skills. We're getting trained in our disciplines because university systems and the departments are run by PhDs who are practitioners of this field and they really wanna focus on the field. And there's value in that, but we're missing the breadth of these other skills. Yeah, totally agree. Well, thank you for the explanation because that does make uh, a lot of sense. And I'm um, kind of blown away. You have a physics degree from MIT. Uh, I am a hardcore nerd at heart. I have degrees <laughs> in physics, EECS, and my graduate work was in cryptography. Wow. That, that's a lot of school, Mark. I, I enjoyed it very much. And yeah. If I had more time, I'd be going back and getting six other degrees. Jeez. So I hope you enjoyed it. That is, that is a lot of school. Um, so what kind of got you um, into that? And you said you did a little bit in the startup phase. And what were some of your biggest takeaways from working in that type of environment versus uh, corporate America when it came to, let's say, uh, leadership and team building? When you go into startups, it is chaos. It is you show up and it's very raw. We have the classic joke, you know, oh, you can talk to anyone because there's no walls here, literally. <laughs> and that's good and bad in many ways. You don't have structure, right? There's no like, well, wait, your title means you shouldn't be in this meeting. You want to be in the meeting, like you can probably just walk over and sit down and no one's going to stop you. And so you, you have this dynamicism and chaos there's far more to do than there are resources. And yes, that's true for all of us, even corporate America, but even more so because here there is no HR department. I was usually the HR person as CTO because no one else was doing it. Right. So your teams are less organized, less static, less structured, 
Whereas at a big company, typically what happens is, okay, the company's been around and, oh, we have a position for a salesperson or an accountant, right? You fit, you fit here right into this slot yeah. and everything's set up around you. So when you're at a startup, and this can be true to a lesser extent for a larger corporation going through a merger or transformation, it's not as solidified. And so that gives you less structure, less support, but more opportunity. So as you think about building your teams, recognize there's going to be more chaos, recognize things aren't going to be as static, and learn to use that to your advantage. Take advantage of the fact that things can change more easily, while that can be a weakness in certain situations as well. Yeah, I've never worked for a startup, but I've worked for big companies. Uh, but I can see that uh, being able to pivot a, a lot quicker, right? It make, makes it, it can make it a lot easier. You know, uh, we did, I just went through an acquisition and now we work for, I work for a Fortune 100. For, I was a Fortune 500 company. Now we're a Fortune 100 company. And it's just like, a, it's a big cog. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's so many layers to the top. Um, I can see what you're talking about. And I think there's a lot of value in that because probably to your experience, you got to learn a lot of different skills, having to wear a lot of different hats. Yeah, that, that's something I enjoyed. And for my own career, because I am the type of person who takes initiative, I am the type of person who will go sit down at the table, even if I wasn't invited. Yeah. I could grow my own skill set. That's not right for everyone. But let, let's give even a more classic or more concrete example, given who the audience is. Just thinking about sales at a big company, when you show up, your sales, it's already divided into territories or segments or however it's set. At a startup, sales is one guy. It's Bob. Bob's your sales guy. Bob deals with it. And then Bob hires Carol. Okay, so it's Bob and Carol. And how do they figure out who gets what? They kind of just make it up as they go. It's not until you start to get salesperson four, five, six that you might start to say, we have regions or we have segments. And even then, it can be fluid, right? If Carol says, hey, look, I know this should go to George, but here's why I think I should take it. You know, let's bend the rules, but of course we'll make up to George. Bob could say, eh, okay, sure. Whereas a big corporation, you've got to go three layers up to get approval and then back <laughs> down. Right. And it gives you the opportunity that if you are misaligned, if you're doing it geographically, but you should be doing it by company size, okay, it's easier to adjust. And it's more likely you're going to need to adjust because you're a startup, you're still figuring it out. These large corporations, there's a reason they came up with the structure. So the odds that they need to adjust are less, but if they ever do, it's a lot harder. It's turning the battleship, not the rowboat. So what were some of your biggest uh, takeaways? Did you have a favorite part of your book that that you wrote um, that you really were like, I feel like this is going to make a big difference. The, I think key lessons coming out of this are twofold. And certainly I, there's all these different parts. Wow, I think this is valuable. I've seen sure. how this helps people. I love the different pieces, but there's two fundamental pieces that we don't talk about as much. Even when you go and you hear people speak about leadership and negotiations, and they're all great, competent, wonderful teachers, right? These executive coaches. Two things to keep in mind. First is that more than anything else, this is a mindset change. It's not about, oh, I now know how to do X, Y, Z. It's about changing your mentality. And so I'll give you an example uh, that I got from another book from Keith Ferrazzi. 
Keith is a master networker. And before I read his book, this is many years ago, I thought of networking as most of us does, which is, okay, you have people in your network and it's useful when you want to find a job and certainly salespeople <laughs> know how to use their networks. And that's, that's kind of what it's for. But he really looked at his network as an extension of himself. Mm. What do I mean by that? We talk about how the phone's an extension of ourself. I don't have to remember facts anymore. I know how to think, but any fact, oh, I just pulled out of my pocket, right? And the right. whole internet is right here, kind of just next to my head and my phone. That's how you should think about your network. Your network's not you, but it's, it's you adjacent. It's right here. Your network's at your fingertips. And anything you need to do, can your network help you? Keep it at the ready. Keep it available, not just for I need to meet a customer, not just I need to find a job. And that shift in mindset, once you get that, you go, wow, this tool is so much more powerful. And so all of these, the way you think about leadership, communications, negotiations, once you get that mindset shift, all of a sudden these tools become much more powerful. So that's the first piece. The second thing is we have to learn these skills in a different way. So when we think about what we have learned in college or even what you learn at work. So if Salesforce comes out with a new module, what happens? You sit down, the training rep comes in and says, here's how to use this new module. And you all remember, this is a key command. This is what you do. Take a few notes, done. That is knowledge transfer. Okay, that, that's straightforward. We know how to do it. We've been doing it all our lives. When you're looking at these skills, there is no use this key command to be a leader. This isn't a simple algorithm for how to network, right? It's right. no one, two, three process. It's how you think. If you look at how business skills teach these skills, and it's also how we teach it at MIT, it's about recognizing these are complex situations and we learn best by having discussions and getting multiple perspectives, by getting different people who would approach it different ways, all of which are correct in their own right, and then synthesizing which of these components work best for me. So as we tackle these skills, as we develop ourselves, read books, listen to these experts, listen to podcasts, they're great, but to really learn, it helps to have a discussion group with other people. So I strongly recommend create some type of reading group, listening group, it can be coworkers, it can be friends, it can be a meetup group, but get that group so you can discuss what you're learning and get those multiple perspectives. And that's going to make you so much stronger, whether you're reading my book or any other content out there. Yeah, I love that. It's interesting that you're, you're talking about that. Um, I never put it in that type of context, but in my office, we do a book club every, every month. And, and so uh, we're on our 13th month. We started last January. So it's our 13th book and it's more books than uh, most of my team has probably read through college. Uh, but, you know, it's, it is interesting because we all read the same book and, and, you know, there'll be 13 different perspectives on the same type of information, which just broadens our horizon. And I'm like, oh, I never thought about it that way. I could use that to my advantage in my pitch, you know, or in my leadership development. So I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it. And you get a second bonus, which is that all of you have read the same book. Now you have a common language. Now you can say, oh, remember that story in this book, that analogy, that framework. And you go, oh, yeah, got it. And so you've got this great tool set for even faster, more efficient communication within your team. And by the way, if anyone uh, wants to figure out how to do this, 
on my website, there is a download, free download that talks about how you can set up this type of program in your organization. And yes, you can use my book, but you don't have to. I'm not, it's not there just to push the book. You can use any book or any content for it, but it talks about how to think about setting up these groups, what the right cadence is, how to think about how big the group should be. And I lay it all out so you can just pick the right options for you and you can set up a book club just like the one you have. I'm curious, is right, right when you said um, size, it immediately brought to mind uh, Sebastian Younger's book, uh, Tribe. Have you read that? I haven't read it. I think I probably read some articles and summaries about years ago. And I, that's the one where he talks about um, like the rule of three and, and different sizes and how we can go up to groups of 150. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I've definitely picked up those concepts along the way. Uh, and and it's, it's important to think about that, that at different sizes, we do get different relationships. So uh, I'll dive in a little to how to set up these book clubs. Sure. When you have a group of five, seven, maybe up to 10 people, you can get that discussion, right? You can get that free flowing discussion. It's easy. And you can do this on, on Zoom as well. When you get above that, a few things start to happen. First, you might not have that same level of kind of trust and intimacy. And depending on the topic you're discussing, that may be important, maybe not. Even just at 20 people, even if you trust them all, these are all your best friends from college, still 20 people, it's hard to have that single conversation. Sure. So as you go up to these mid-sized groups, you, you want to structure it differently where it's not just we're all sitting in a circle having a free-flowing conversation. And you can think about maybe a more formal conversation. Maybe you have like a moderator for the group. Maybe ahead of time, people would bring up some questions or issues. So it's a little more structured. Mm -hmm. If you go up to doing this with a group of 100 people, okay, at that point, it's not even a moderator. You have to do a little more formally where maybe you have, you bring someone in to do, everyone reads the, the content. Maybe you have like a speaker about it. And then it's more of a formal Q&A session to get different perspectives. So depending on the size of the group, you're going to want to structure differently because those relationships and that communication connection is going to be different. Right as you're saying that, it's really interesting. Um, so, you know, I've seen this in a lot of, a lot of different organizations. Uh, having worked for big organizations, we'll do these all-manager meetings, right? And, and, and they want us to cross-collaborate and they'll ask a question, hey, uh, well, what do you, what do you think, you know, how do we tackle this problem this quarter? And everybody there like has their own opinion, but they don't come forth with it. But then you, you break it out, you know, uh, it, it going from a group of like 25 to a group of seven, everybody will start talking. Right. It's, it's completely different. And even the group of 25, we all know each other really well, but when you break it down. So I'm just curious when it comes to leadership or teamwork, did you think it almost behooves a leader to really hone in on a smaller team versus a larger team because of that intimacy and the uh, cross collaboration? So I think there's there's two aspects to that. One is, you're I think you're right. That's easier to get ideas out in a smaller group, um, and that comes from. If I'm standing in front of a group of 30 people and I get up to, here's my idea, the odds I'm going to explain it perfectly to everyone right out of the gate, especially this is almost spontaneous thinking because it's not a, a rehearsed uh, speech. 
at that point, okay, I'm gonna say something wrong. Someone's gonna have a criticism. And there's 30 people, so I don't necessarily have the time for, oh, no, boy, right, I get what you're saying. I really meant this. No, no, I do address that. And that's really hard. And so odds are when we stand up in front of 30 people, there's gonna be a couple objections and we're not gonna have a chance to do it. When you're sitting in that group of seven, okay, it's more back and forth. And when someone brings up that objection, first, fewer people are seeing me being opposed. And it's easier to say, oh, right, right, yeah. And this is how I'm gonna handle that. And the other person's more likely to listen instead of yet another person now needs to speak. So I think it's easier to, to do that. And in fact, um, going even further, there's studies about introverts versus extroverts. Mm -hmm. Now in sales in particular, I, I believe, I haven't seen studies, but it wouldn't surprise me if there tends to be an extrovert skew among sales team members. Right, yeah. And, and so introverts, you know, the people who just, introvert, extrovert is not quite the right terminology, but there are people who they want to sit there and think before they speak, right, and be reflective. I'm not saying salespeople don't think before they, they speak, but it's, it's, very much about, it's creating that <laughs> dynamic, that warmth, that relationship. And so it's a different feel. So what happens is you get a bunch of, we'll just call them extroverts, introverts. So the extroverts start throwing out ideas and talking about, and the introverts think, no, no, wait, stop, stop. I need, I need to think. I can't get an idea fully thought out. And what happens is the quieter people get overwhelmed, right? And kind of outshouted, not intentionally on anyone's part. So there are techniques that can be used. One technique I use a lot with brainstorming, for example, is instead of everyone shout out ideas, we're gonna take 10 minutes, write your ideas on three by five cards. And this does a couple things. You have that quiet time to yourself where you're not, oh wait, what did they just say and like think about it? Just you're on your own. It gives more independent thought because now you're not being, you're not being swayed by the last three things said. And if you don't put your names on it, this is an option, then you just throw it all in a pile. Even if it's a really dumb idea, who cares? It wasn't your idea, it was someone else's. They threw it in the pile. And so you can use techniques like this uh, to, to create that, to create some of the, reduce the social penalties, even if you're in these, these larger groups. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Thank you for going so in depth. Uh, with, with that answer. Um, I wanted to swing back and talk about networking. I'm not sure if, if you, how much TV you watch. If you're like, I have a feeling you're probably not like me and watch a whole lot of TV. I, I watch more than I should. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, we're being, we're being honest. Here. I like that. So um, yeah, there's a new show called Undercover Billionaire. It's on Discovery and Grant Cardone starring in it. And uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Grant Cardone and what he does. And it kind of reminded me about when you're networking with people, you know, he has very much the philosophy of like what you're talking about with the book uh, that he makes people extension of himself. So when he goes to, you know, Pueblo, Colorado, the whole premise is like they take away all of his money to give him a hundred dollars, take away his, change his identity, shaves his head. Nobody knows him. He's got to start a million dollar business in 90 days. Huh. And so what he does, the first thing he does is like, okay, who can I start to network? Who has my money? Right. And so how can I start networking and leveraging my relationships and my network to get to the business I want to get to where the other two ladies in the show, they uh, immediately go work, look for jobs. And so they start making $15 an hour and Grant goes in and starts leveraging relationships with business owners and working for free um, in, in the show. And so I just thought, you know, I just, one of those things that just popped in my mind about that. And, um, 
so so when you're talking about leveraging relationships and networks, it's like, you know, it'd be great to have a friend that I know that is a great CPA that I could call and ask accounting questions to, or it'd be great to have a, a great person I know that's really proficient in real estate. Is that what we're, just to kind of expand on that a bit more, because I think it's really important, the networking piece. Absolutely. It's interesting. You gave two examples in that story that they're, they almost sound in conflict. So the first, first thing you said about uh, this person is he thinks, who has my money? So when I heard that, it was, oh, it's going, what can I, what can I get? Who can give me money? He's got money. I'm going to grab that money. But the second thing, his actions were, I'm going to go and help these business owners. And I very much fall into the camp of networking is karmic. Networking mm -hmm. is give before you get. So whenever I meet someone, my first thought is, how can I help this person? What can I do to be helpful to them? Because it's going to come back to me in some way. And that's what he's doing with his actions. He knows I'm going to help these folks and it will work out. No, he's being strategic and he's on a clock of 90 days. So sure. they just can't help anyone. These people are more likely to have, to have an immediate return. Uh, that of course, in the real world, we know it's not about can I get something from you today? And this, by the way, I'm going to, I'm going to just jump my soapbox for a minute. Sure. I get so many inbound emails as a CTO, I have a target on my back for salespeople, right? Because they look and say, you've got budget authority, you buy things, okay, I want to sell to you. But they come in and it's fine to say, hey, I want to sell to you. Look, I get that's your job. I get the cold emails. But when you come in and say, ooh, I want to network with you. No, you want to sell to me and that's fine. But let's not pretend this is networking. Let's not pretend you're reaching out for anything more than I want to sell you my product or service. And sure, if we build a relationship, you're probably happy with that. But you're first and foremost about selling. And so don't confuse selling with networking. They're both valid. You can reach out for either reason, but, but recognize what you're doing and, and build, the, build the path and that communication appropriately. That makes a, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do get spammed quite a bit. Um, people hitting you up. And I, I'm always interested in people's tactics because I feel like sometimes when... I don't want to say that people are being disingenuous, but I, you know, I get hit up a lot on, on LinkedIn too. And um, it's always like, you know, what can I, what can I do for you? And I'm like, well, that's nice, but I don't know. What can you do for me? You pr provide me some insight on how you can help me. And then maybe we can start a conversation. I don't know who you are or really even what you do. So I, I have no, I have no idea. I just get, I get that. I get that question all the time. And it kind of drives me nuts. I know people are trying to be nice and start a dialogue but it's not very insightful. Kind of like you were talking about when we were offline that people did not do their homework on me. And that's, you know, that's another thing I see commonly with salespeople. They start with something that's reasonable for them to want to get, which is, okay, I want to sit down and learn about your business. Tell me about your business. Tell me about your problems. And they ask this so they can tailor what they're going to give to me. But I have better things to do than to help you do your job better. My just spending 20 minutes telling you about these are my needs doesn't help me unless magically you have the right product. And I can tell you, you know, 19 times out of 20, you don't. So it's not efficient for me to sit there and do the work for you. But if you go in and say, okay, I'm going to look at this company. I'm going to look at their employees. I can find the number of employees. I can look up who are the employees on, on LinkedIn. I can look at 
who have they been hiring? I can look at their press releases, look at their funding, look at anything that's been going on lately. You can start to gather that information. And then if you reach out and say, okay, I see you just got your B round, you're hiring lots of people for this, you've got this software out, like I'm guessing your problems are probably A, B, C. And you're not gonna get it exactly right, but it says to me, okay, you've done your homework. What you've said is you're willing to sacrifice your time to do your job instead of saying, I'm lazy, Mark, you sacrifice your time to make my job easier. Yeah, 100%. The, uh, the moment we started talking about that, it reminds me of the challenger sale, you know, where it, it, it's more about being insightful than because everybody is trying to bring value. But like a lot of times you're just bringing me value of my own vertical that I already know. So it's not, actually not valuable, right? Because I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. I already fucking knew that. Um, but providing insight or a blind spot or insight on a blind spot of my business to start the conversation off, even like you're saying, I'm off a little bit on the mark. At least it shows me that you care. You can reference how you've worked with other people who had that similar problem they didn't know existed. It might catch my attention, especially if you drop a competitor's name. I think you're heading, we're, we're on the same page with that. If you can take some market research that you've done and share it with me, just so I learn a little more about the vendor space that you're in or something, okay, there, there's some value. Uh, oh, the, the biggest offenders are recruiters. So tech recruiters are just, they spam even worse than salespeople. So I get every day, I get tech recruiters trying to recruit me because they say, oh, uh, would you like a mid-level Java developer position? Because I see 20 years ago, you have the word Java on your resume. And then they also reach out to me because, oh, hey, you're a CTO. I'll bet you're hiring people. And mm -hmm. what they don't understand is literally I get this every day. And they're all a dime a dozen, right? They all say, oh, there's, there's no cost. You know, we're contingency only. Like, right. Well, if I need one, I can get get someone tomorrow or the next day, or like there's a literally, literally a train coming every five minutes. So what are you doing to, to add value? Now, what they do know is, and I can, I can buy industry reports, you know, they come for free from like the large recruiting firms, but they're on the ground, right? They're on the ground talking to companies, talking to candidates. They see things tactically that these big companies way up here don't. And if they just said, hey, here's my monthly market update, okay, you know, maybe I'll look at that and maybe it's valuable, maybe not. But now you're, you're at least attempting to give me something valuable. Yeah. And these are for recruiters who are just literally a dime a dozen, like they are interchangeable in their service. Your particular product or software or service, uh, there's probably something a little more niche. And so you can focus on, hey, here's something we know better than others, or maybe my two or three competitors know it as well but we're gonna share it with you. So when you reach out, can you generate value? Can you provide me something? Cause you did your homework, you think you know what I want and give me something I'm likely to want to start. That's gonna catch my attention. And I might even wanna keep in touch with you and build that relationship. Cause okay, I'm getting something out of it even if we're not buying today. And then I'm gonna have you, you know, as a relationship down the road. So when I do need something, we have that existing relationship. Yeah. Well, well said, Mark. I, I would think that you uh, grew up in sales. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I Sales is probably one of my weaker areas, although I was very lucky uh, to work with a guy, Brendan O'Donohoe, at my last company. And he is just the best sales guy I've ever seen. I learned so much from, from working with him. Good. Well, 
Shout, uh, Brendan, you said? Brendan, yes. Brendan, shout out to Brendan. So uh, you can tell we, we talked about him we, on Grind, Sell, and Elevate. Brendan, you're the man. Uh, no, that's always a nice compliment because, you know, sales is not, is not hard. I mean, it, it, it is hard, excuse me. It's not easy um, is what I meant to say. Um, I did want to get your perspective on where, you know, especially having worked for big, with big companies, for big companies, startups, you're going to have a very good perspective of where do sales leaders or leaders in general start to go wrong with their communication? You know, because I think culture for me is such a pivotal uh, way to accelerate growth is by creating great culture. And that usually comes from, you know, top-down leadership. Where do people go wrong? What I commonly see, and it's not just sales, other sales may be, because it's a little more external facing than some mm -hmm. of the other groups, uh, we might see us a little more. It's remembering we're all touching different parts of the elephant. If you know this old uh, Indian parable about the blind man, the elephant, they're all touching different parts of it. We all have a different perspective. And so we have to recognize, this is true for all leaders, when we come in and we're communicating to different parts of the company, it's important to, to put it in, in perspective. Now, to be fair, engineers are notorious for not understanding their customers. And I tell all my engineers, as well as product people who often don't do this as much as they should, you need to understand the customer. Like when I consulted to Sears, this is many years ago, they did something that I thought was at least in concept good, which is that every person had to spend one day a year sitting in the call center and you were just shadowing some person taking customer service complaints and you'd literally hear the customer complaining and you'd get a sense for what is it that the customers, you know, what are their problems? What are their needs? I don't know if that's the most efficient way to do it, but all of us need to understand the customer better. And of course, salespeople sometimes forget that the rest of us don't understand the customer as well. Just like engineers often forget, you know, we don't all speak computers, right? Yeah. Put that into different non-technical terms for us. Finance people need to remember, you know, it's not all just like, here's the accounting and, oh, look, you know, days outstanding is this and that's bad. Okay, well, if you don't know accounting, what why, why is, you know, 92 DSO bad instead of 65? What does that mean? So we always have to remember from where we are when we're engaging as a leader, we're typically engaging people outside of our own discipline. And we have to be broader in how we communicate to them and put things in a way that relates to their understanding of the world. Yeah, wonderful answer. Thank you. Um, do you have, Mark, any, any success habits, something like asking high, high achievers, high performers uh, that you do that's a, like a daily discipline that you feel like has really helped you? I wouldn't say I have any of those. Uh, the closest I have is twofold. Uh, first, my rule of thumb is anytime you're not in a pandemic, you should be handing out a business card a day. Mm. Just general rule of thumb, just always, not that, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, I run out and hand it to someone on the street. But just as a general rule, like my business card should be going out once a day, right? And that gives me a sense of, am I going out and meeting new people? And then it's also, it is the concept of meeting new people. Too many people, they think, well, I am in this field. I need to know people in this field. And to your point, you talked about, oh, it's good to know an accountant if I have finance questions. It's good to know the realtor. It's not just that they will they'll give you help to that first order. They also have a much more 
uh, diverse or at least a different set of people in their network than you do. Mm. So for example, I don't necessarily need more engineers in my network. I mean, I can say, oh, you're an engineer. I don't need to know you, but I know plenty. I am well connected from having worked in the field for decades. I don't know a lot of clergy, but I know two pretty well and they know hundreds of clergy, right? They don't know many engineers, but I do for them. And so we bring in this diversity to our networks because you never know when that, that kind of random connection is going to lead you somewhere, possibly even back into your own discipline, just through a different route. Yeah, love it. Um, last question, Mark, for you. Where can people find your book? If you go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com, from there, you can find more information about the book. You can click the buy button. It will take you to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, all the usual places. Although I should note, we are nearly out of the first print run. We sold out in almost two weeks. The last couple hundred copies just got shipped to Amazon. Uh, but the second print run is, is on the way as fast as possible. You can also download the free app. It's for both Android and iPhone. And so this has a lot of the content in the book that just comes up as a daily reminder. You talked about daily tips, daily habits. Once a day, you're gonna get a pop-up on your phone, you look at, three seconds later, swipe it away. That's all it takes. And you're gonna reinforce what you get in the book. Because I know when I read books, I forget it three weeks later. So this helps to reinforce what you learn. And then of course, there's lots of free downloads on the resources page. So you can download how you can create a book club, just like you have at your organization, and a whole bunch of other tools that will help you be successful. Cool. And what's the website one more time? TheCareerToolkitBook.com. Perfect. And I will link that in the show notes for everybody listening. So you'll be able to just scroll right down into the description, the show notes, and click it and go snag Mark's book. Mark, if they want to connect with you personally, where would be the best place for them to do that? There's a contact form on the website, and then you can also follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram. All right, perfect. Okay, I, I will link those as well, but I'm 100% I'm, I'm positive they're also probably on Mark's website. Um, but Mark, thank you so much. This has been a very enlightening and well-thought-out conversation. I did not expect anything less from you, though. But thank you very much for your time. Thank you again for having me on your show.